Hey everyone, thanks for dropping into this week's episode. Really appreciate the support. Uh, if you haven't done so already, follow us on Run It Up Official on our Instagram. We've also got the fan page for the podcast called the Run It Up Podcast, of course. Uh, really appreciate you guys with all the support. Hope you guys check out, give us a follow, like, subscribe. You know what to do, guys. All right, let's get straight into it. Really appreciate you coming on, Josh. Um, for those who are not too familiar about you, just let everyone know who I've got on the podcast today. Perfect. Thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Josh Katz and I'm in the Australian Jura team. Uh, I qualified for the 2016 Olympic Games uh, in the sport of Jura um, and have been doing Jura my whole life. So currently traveling the world and uh, trying to qualify for my second Olympic Games uh, in Tokyo later this year. So it's been a pretty, pretty busy couple of months. Uh, the world definitely looks a lot different than it did uh, trying to qualify before Rio, but uh, it's a very exciting journey. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful to be a part of it. And so Josh, a few crazy things people probably don't know about you is your first Olympics in 2016, you were only 18 years old which was must have been an absolute unreal feeling I imagine just finished high school and then straight into uh Rio yep so I'd been uh I'd been traveling a little bit throughout school um but more just for training and and some smaller level competitions uh junior and at the younger age levels and then uh, probably two weeks after I finished my last HSC exam, I uh, competed in my first Olympic qualifying event. Um, so that was, I guess the, the goal was never really to qualify for Rio. It was just like try to get as much experience as you can. It was an exciting time. Finishing school had a bit of freedom. So I thought try to fight as many competitions as I can, travel the world. And uh, yeah, the results just started coming fairly fairly quickly after I finished school, which was, which was amazing. And then, um, yeah, by about January, February of 2016, then, um, then Rio was a possibility. So it was a pretty, pretty fast, uh, whirlwind really. Um, it wasn't really like, I guess the, the four year cycle that some people talk about for me personally. Um, yeah, so it's a very different experience, I guess, to this time around having, uh, now prepared for four years specifically for the one, for the one event. And also, just on top of that, um, your family is quite immersed in Australian judo, you know, um, competing with your brother or competing and training with your older brother, Nathan, plus your mum competing in Seoul, the Australian team. And then, then of course, your dad having a major part in coaching as well. It must have been a real crazy experience as well on top of that because you're like the younger sibling of the family. Yep. Finally completing that full circle of the entire Cats family, a part of the Australian judo um, circuit must have been crazy as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm really lucky. My, uh, my family plays such a big role um, in, this, in my life in terms of on and off the mat, um, which is awesome. My, like you said, my mum competed at the Olympics. My dad was the coach of the Olympic team that she competed in. Um, and they've been our coaches since we started judo and my older brother Nathan and I both qualified for Rio together so that was really amazing experience to be able to to share that with him especially being so young Um, and he's only three years older than me so he was really 
very young as well. Um, so it was really amazing to be able to share that together and, and having them on every step of the journey along with me. And they understand everything that I've gone through because they've, they've really gone through it themselves as well. So, um, yeah, really lucky to, to be able to share that with them. Um, definitely gets challenging at times because there's, uh, there's not always that separation between family time and judo time. Um, but I think over the, over the years, we've, we've uh, managed to develop it into a way where we can enjoy both parts of our life and, and they're, not, they're not draining on us too much. And just on top of that, it must have been like a real um, asset as well to have both your parents so heavily involved and with such experience, you kind of get, um, I guess, uh, two different perspectives on like the emotion, like helping you deal with emotions and probably um, what to expect as well. Was, was that like a big, um, was that like something you noticed throughout your career or was it kind of like when you got to a certain age, you kind of like, it kind of clicked and saw what they were saying is kind of like how things have been playing out. Uh, I think it was definitely a little bit of both. I mean, uh, there was definitely a lot of times where I was picking their brain, um, trying to understand a few things before I was um, getting immersed in them. So, you know, the first time I traveled overseas or the first time I went to a junior worlds or the first time I went to the, the Olympics, obviously like trying to pick their brain as to what all those experiences were like, just so I could prepare myself as much as possible. But I mean, you never really are able to, to fully prepare. The world has changed quite a lot um, since they were traveling and competing at the Olympics. Um, that whole experience has changed quite a lot. And they were, they said the exact same thing. Um, so, I mean, I tried to learn as much from them in advance. Um, but then, yeah, just learning from my own experiences and then having them to, I guess, the their wisdom and experience to be able to tell me like when, you know, things are not, it's not the end of the world and, and things like that, that, um, that definitely make a big difference. And I guess it, it is useful. It is really um, nice to have people that understand it as well. It's not just somebody like a, someone that has never done it before telling you, Oh yeah, it's not the worst thing. Like, you know, losing sucks, but you'll be fine. Like you wake up tomorrow feeling better. Like they do understand how much you put in the investment into the sport and how much it does mean to you. So they're with you on the highs and they, they fully understand the, the passion when, and the emotion when you do well. And then on the flip side as well, they're there for you um, when things don't go your way, which is, which is really nice to have as well. It's not just somebody telling you what you want to hear. It's, it's actually what you need to hear. And it's not always what you want to hear, but uh, sometimes you, you learn that afterwards anyway. <laughs> yeah. Do you find, um, or did you find there was any pressure to perform in judo or like any pressure to win every say major um, event because your parents were so uh, well versed in judo and because like the name behind it in Australian judo is they're known for high level competing and winning. Um, I don't think I personally felt it when I was competing as a kid. Um, having now got a little bit older, obviously like when I was a kid, there was all these people that I had no idea who they were that knew me. So they were like, Oh yeah, you're Robin Carey's kid and looking forward to watching you fight and all that sort of stuff, which I guess when you're young, you don't really understand it. So I was, I guess, a little bit naive and lucky to be naive that I just sort of fought and, and was very talented as a junior. So I did well. Um, 
but I didn't really understand it until I got a little bit older. And then sort of mum and dad would tell me, you know, like as a kid, they, they felt a lot of pressure as well because all these people were telling them like, oh, I can't wait to watch your son. Like, and for Nathan as well, like Nathan came first before me. So I can imagine it was even uh, more for him because he was the first one that was competing. Um, and they, you know, all these people used to say they, they went up to them and can't wait to watch your boys fight. And oh, I hope they go to the Olympics as well. And it's like, man, like the boys are only like 10 and 11. Like they, they're just fighting at like the state titles. Do you know what I mean? Like forget like a uh, world championships Olympics. Like they're just fighting other 10 year olds at the time. So um, I guess I was pretty lucky that all that sort of stuff went straight over my head. And Nathan probably took it a little bit um, more than me, to be honest, which was, which is unfortunate for him, but lucky for me, I can't complain. <laughs> yeah, because um, you've seen with, you can see with um, a lot of, say, because um, I've got a bit of a basketball, uh, mainly background, um, but recently more into jiu-jitsu and uh, freestyle wrestling. Um, you can see, say, uh, Michael Jordan's children, but also um, a good example was Magic Johnson's son um i guess people kind of expected that they would be the next to fall in place of what their father did and i guess you, you can see it with you know whatever sport you pick you can kind of see like people different audiences fans kind of want that they want that child to be like them and they're kind of like disappointed when they want to do their own thing which is it's kind of, you know, well, it's not sad, but it's like just got to let them do their own thing as well, mm. which is really interesting. Um, so just to backtrack a bit, um, I do have a little bit of um, <laughs> judo background. Just as a kid, you know, it was like one of those things, I guess a lot of, a lot of kids kind of tend to, well, do, um, I guess recently you can say jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is kind of chiming in in that as well but my experience was at um university of new south wales unsw with um warren uh warren rosser and he was oh he is an absolute animal yeah just seeing old seeing old um videos and just the way he was like teaching like he's really good with the kids which is something i guess and any parent can really appreciate but one thing that really sticks out was um, he would stand in like a staggered stance, say feet, uh, feet shoulder with a part, and he would just do like a side flip and land on his hip. Like I'd never seen, I don't think the parents ever seen anything like that. I don't even think that was humanly possible as well. But he was just an absolute beast watching yeah, him train. Yeah, he's still around now. He's uh, still got the exact same, uh, still got the same energy and the same passion and, I uh, I see some videos of him popping up every now and then still coaching like really, really little kids and he's still got that exact same energy and you can just see all of their faces like, whoa, like, and, and that's awesome. Like uh, there's not many people are able to, to do that. Um, I mean, I personally, I love teaching judo and I love coaching for kids, but I think uh, being able to have that energy with a deep, like an even younger demographic is, uh, is definitely difficult. And, and going back to what you said before about um, like the expectation to to go into the sport, like there was definitely, I guess, a little bit of internal, I guess, pressure that I maybe put on myself that I should follow through 
with judo. But um, to be honest, I always thought I would play soccer. Like I played a lot of other sports when I was younger and um, yeah, mum and dad, like were really happy. They did everything they could to get me to all the sports that I wanted to play. Um, and then it got to about 14 or 15 where you can, you sort of have a choice to be pretty good at two different sports, or if you want to start to excel in one, then you have to make a bit of a decision. And, and they really left that onto me a hundred percent. So, um, in the end, I probably, if I was chasing the money, I probably made the wrong decision. Um, but, uh, I think, uh, in the end it's, it hasn't worked out too bad anyway. Yeah, of course, because you know, you're at that Olympic level anyway. So who knows, maybe you wouldn't have got that um, type of level in soccer. So I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think I always knew in the back of my head that um, as much as I love playing and I was, I was pretty talented at soccer, I, I, I didn't have uh, the same level of drive or motivation to, to do all the extra training and, and the things that make up the difference in the end. Cause I was good, but I, I don't think I ever would have, would have made it. So I'm glad that, uh, maybe that internal pressure led me in uh, in this direction anyway. Yeah, of course. And it's clearly the right choice as well. So uh, Josh, what does your, let's say average training schedule look like? Are you just going out different uh, conditioning into technique into, um, I'm not sure if judo guys do like light sparring, but do you just, is it just constant conditioning training? sleep so at the moment um things look a little bit different because we're competing in so many um olympic qualifying events in a pretty short period of time so this year we've already competed three times and we've actually got three more events coming up over the next three weeks so a lot of that sort of period is just um sort of keeping your body in good condition trying to stay injury free um your weight obviously has to stay pretty low because you don't have time to for, to let it go up and down in between competitions. But in a typical sort of training um, environment, which was which was almost all of 2020 last year, having not been able to travel for competing at all, um, we usually train two to three times a day. Um, so that would be like one strength and conditioning session in the morning, um, one sort of technical or drilling session if we're going to do the third session, and then. Mo- almost every night is a uh, is pretty hard sparring session as well. And that would be uh, five or six days a week. So usually average out probably 14 to 16 sessions um, in a week. And then, yeah, Sunday is, uh, yeah, just try to recover and, and uh, start the new week, I guess. <laughs> uh, what kind of like recovery do you guys, do you do like your own recovery or I imagine like the Australian um, sporting side of things they provide to some degree of the best, best techniques they could probably provide. Is there anything you do um, on your own as well? Yeah. So, I mean, it's difficult in Australia because all of the athletes are in different cities around the world. Most of them are spread between Sydney and Melbourne, um, but there's a few others scattered between Brisbane and Perth and, so a lot of it, you sort of have to be a little bit independent and proactive. You can't rely too heavily on sort of the structures around you. Um, they are there if you need them, but we're really lucky. Me and Nathan, um, our support network at home. So we have access to massage and try to do as much sort of cold and hot baths as possible. Even when uh, in winter, it gets a little bit dicey with the cold pool. 
Um, but yeah, just a lot of stretching, um, a lot of foam rolling and massage. And I've had a pretty bad run of injuries since, since uh, Rio. So I've just been a lot more mindful of, of taking care of my body and trying to be as healthy as possible. Still, it's always a learning process. Um, as much as you know, there's always something that happens that uh, makes you rethink everything that you're doing. But um, definitely take a lot more care of, of my body than, than I used to anyway. And I mean, I'm still pretty young. I'm still only 23, but uh, yeah, trying to stay in the sport for as long as possible. And for the sort of run of injuries I was having for a period of time, it didn't look like I was going to have a lot of longevity. Um, so yeah, definitely trying to change that at the moment. Was there, do you think that was because of some sort of like overtraining or not training correctly that you're getting all these like long, I guess, accumulating injuries or was it more you're up against essentially adults? Like you and I being the same age and then even when, um, of course, you probably feel it as well when uh, I go up against older guys that got, even in basketball, like they're, they, they may not be like in the gym every day, but they're like, I don't know, they've got like an extra 20 years of bone density the man being strength thrown at you. <laughs> yeah. So was it? I think um, uh, there was a period where I didn't take it as seriously as I probably needed to. I would train really hard and I would always train really hard. Like that's, that's never been an issue for me, um, training or work ethic or anything like that. But in terms of the, the off mat stuff, the recovery and my nutrition and stuff to try to bring my weight, to keep my weight at a pretty stable um, level. I don't think I always took that as seriously as I, as I needed to. So going into some of those, the preparation for competitions where you're not taking your recovery as seriously and you're trying to lose quite probably more weight than you should be trying to lose in a pretty short period of time. Then you add that on top of the really hard training and it's just a recipe for something to go wrong. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of those experiences that I, I don't, I, I'm grateful that I had them so that I could learn from them. Cause I feel like as much as everybody tells you in your lectures, when you're a kid and oh, eat well and do this and don't let, don't be too heavy and all that sort of stuff. I feel like you need, a few of those bad experiences just to really understand the consequences of it. Um, so, yeah, I think just trying to take a more um, 12 months approach to being an athlete, trying to be an athlete all the time. And if you're going to have a nice meal, then you start eating healthy again straight away after and, and things like that. And just being more mindful um, of it's the year round process as opposed to just, uh, just the three or four weeks before every competition. Yeah, that's really important. Uh, what you said um, first thing was there's one thing to like hear something and like do the right, right way. Then once you go through that um, mistake, you kind of comprehend and then you get that feeling of like, oh man, I really messed up on this one. I'm not going to like ever do that again. And also taking it as like you're essentially full-time athlete. It's not just a part-time um, casual job it's constant it's the next thing I'm sure like your opponents and your competition they're in similar situations where it's it's not a part-time situation it's my career it's my it's the direction I want to go so I gotta stay on top of stay on top of myself and all diet and necessities of course yeah it's exactly right if uh, 
it took me a little while to realize. And I mean, you sort of, eventually I made a few of those mistakes more than once. Um, but uh, I guess it's just, you're thinking about, I'm doing all this training and investing so much time into making myself like so physically strong and fit and, and good at and good at skills and technique. And, and then I don't take the other stuff seriously. So it sort of doesn't make any sense when you, when you actually break it down and think of it like that. So um, yeah, I mean, it's always a work in progress and there's always things to, to improve on and, and to be a little more proactive and seeking out other ways to recover and, and to be better. But um, I mean, at the moment, I feel like this is the best shape I could be in for, for these events, which is, which is all you can really ask for. Yeah, of course. Um, it's the same with any top athlete. LeBron James, Gordon Ryan in jiu-jitsu is those two. If you're not too sure, they are absolute monsters. But they're always, you know, refining their tools, refining their approaches. There's always something more you can do. Like, you know, it's, it's a marathon, but like a never-ending marathon. Like, you're never going to arrive at 100%. Because there's always, you know, as you know, there's always something you can do. If it's an extra 10 push-ups or an extra 10 uchimaris, extra extra sprints and whatever it is. I like that. I like uh, how you threw <laughs> that in there. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> but you're yeah. right. The goalposts always change. Every time uh, you start to get close to, to hitting the goal, the goalposts move a little bit further away. So, um, yeah, I think it's with any of those guys that have achieved – things that nobody else has they've their goalposts have gone further than what anyone else um has said before so you know it's uh it's motivating and inspiring to look at people like that and um and see them chasing things that nobody else has done before because it's one thing to aspire to achieve goals that are super high like winning an olympic medal and then it's another thing to say i want to win more medals or more gold medals than anyone's ever done before like they're they're sort of it's hard to even comprehend that. I think until you get to close to that level um, and really understand it. Mm. Is there? Do you have like a easy time uh, making weight at sixty kilos? Is that kind of like your walking walking around weight? No, it's definitely uh, not my walking around weight. Uh, I mean, it's definitely got easier. The um, having for me personally, having quite a few competitions in uh, a fairly short period of time does make it easier for me because it just forces you to be a little bit more disciplined between competitions. Um, but yeah, my normal walking around weight is about 65 to 66 kilos, um, which is my natural weight. And then bring that down to 60 um, in, for each competition. So, I mean, at the moment uh, I'm able to do it pretty well and it, it doesn't affect my performance in any way negatively. Um, there's definitely been times where, it has negatively affected my performance and um, it's something, uh, but I guess uh, every time in the back of your head, you think, Oh, maybe I could just move up a weight division and it wouldn't be so bad. Then you train with someone in that weight division. That's really, really good. And then you're like, Oh, maybe I should just diet a little bit more and stay <laughs> in my weight. <laughs> yeah. Cause you can see that in the UFC, you see um, massive difference. Say like Paula Costa, in a yep. middleweight, 85 kilos, he looks like he's at least closer yeah. to 95 or 100. And then you see Israel Adesanya, yep. who doesn't even make 85. He comes in under the weight most of the time. 
which is yeah. fascinating as well. So with those, mm. um, say, um, poorer weight cuts, was that just because you were kind of like testing out a new way of cutting weight or was it you're cutting too much water, you like mistimed meals and whatnot? Um, I think there's always a few different factors. Um, potentially like carrying an injury can affect uh, going into some competitions or to be honest, like when you're young, a lot of it could just be lack of discipline. Like when I was younger and I just thought like, yeah, what I made it once before and it was pretty hard so I can do it again. And, and you don't really understand that that's a, actually a pretty bad negative effect that it has on you. Um, and I think, I feel like it's just you, as long as they're not dangerous, there's everyone I think needs those bad experiences to really learn um, the consequences of, of what it is because um yeah, as much as ever, like we were saying before, as much as everyone tells you, oh, it's going to negatively impact your performance until you're in the fight and you start getting tired two or three minutes earlier than when you would normally get tired, then you're like, oh, wow, like maybe I should have done, like made weight a little bit better. And it typically always just leads to losing too much weight on the last day or two days, trying to lose too much water weight, which is really dangerous if you do it, if you do it incorrectly. Um, and yeah, definitely has a big impact on your performance because I mean, those UFC guys, like you were talking about before, they lose a lot more weight typically because they're only fighting probably three or four times a year. Whereas we compete probably 10 to 12 times a year. So you can't afford to lose anywhere near as much weight. Um, and the time difference between the weigh-in makes quite a big difference as well. So between a lot of the different combat sports, I think in a lot of the jujitsu, they actually weigh in just before they compete, which is, another challenge in itself. Um, MMA, they usually get about 36 hours between the weigh-in and the competition, which is, which is huge. Like for us that, I mean, it's hard to even comprehend why you make weight in the first place. If you're going to have 36 hours to eat and drink. Um, and for us, it's about 12 hours. So we weigh in the night before and then compete in the morning. Um, and they, they put a, a little, a little cap on how much weight you're allowed to put on at the start of the morning anyway. So, um, yeah, so even if you wanted, even if you try to lose five or six kilos in, in a really short period of time, you can only afford to put on, say for me, you're only allowed to put on three kilos back on the morning of the competition. So if you've lost five and you can only put three back on, you're still going to be in a really big deficit um, from where you need to be to be able to perform at a good level. So I think it's important to learn different things from from the other combat sports and, and nutritionists and dietitians and stuff like that. But it is really important to uh, develop your own understanding as well, because there's not that many people understand judo mate, uh, making weight specifically for judo. So um, it's important that you learn from your own experiences and do a little bit of your own learning as well. And, and I guess make uh, improve on, improve on your own mistakes each time so that you can do it as well as possible. Yeah, It's really interesting because each kind of like combat sports has their own type of making weight and they're all got like their own different um, programs. Um, I don't know if you saw, there was actually one card, one fight on the one of the cards today in the UFC. Um, one of the uh, female fighters actually was not, uh, not pulled out because she like, she actually fainted twice. Yeah. She fainted on the scales, like collapsed. Mm-hmm. And I guess they reported she, they got her up and then she collapsed again, which was really, it's really frightening. 
Yeah. And it's also it's also strange how they do it as well because they kind of have like like you said, like 24 hours or like 36 hours to kind of put all that weight back on. So it's like, you know, it kind of defeats the purpose, but as opposed to um, some of the jujitsu competitions I've been in, you just, what as soon as you get there, um, check your name off, they just weigh you straight away, which is, oh, it's hard to say which one's better though. Because yeah, of course, I think it is difficult because uh, I feel like people the idea that, oh, let's get rid of weight cutting. Like it, it doesn't, it's, it's a silly idea because people are always going to exploit um, the system. However it works, I guess in jujitsu, it's probably slightly less dangerous to compete losing a little bit more weight because I guess you don't have the, the, the head trauma or things like that. So if you are competing in MMA dehydrated, then the risk of like head trauma and, and um, things like that is really bad. But yeah, I saw that. I saw that girl fainting as well, and it's just crazy that things like that happen in in such a regulated. Like, uh, I mean, it's the biggest organization in the world, and to for people to allow her to get to that point is and still think that she's okay to fight. Like her coaches and stuff still letting her go out to weigh in to ready to fight is is insane. Yeah, because um, for people who don't know, they actually have a scale in the back room, so they actually weigh in, and then they do like the old school weigh in for the cameras and whatnot. So I'm assuming she probably wasn't feeling her best when she was on that yeah. backstage scale. Um, do you guys, when you guys weigh in, do they account for the gay as well? Cause in jujitsu, if you compete in gay, they say it's like a, it's crazy. They say it's like a two kilo um, variance. So it adds two kilos on. No. So our, um, our weigh in is just uh you can go in your boxes or you can go uh, just in with the towel. It's, it's up to you, but there's no, um, no gi, which is lucky. I guess I wouldn't, wouldn't feel good yeah. having to get down to the and put a gi on. <laughs> yeah. That's, it, that's just one rule. Like I never understood because it's like, I don't know how that gi would play any role in like your weight. It just means someone may have to actually cut a couple extra kilos more, which yeah which I haven't seen personally, but maybe in some cases it may be a bit too much for some people. Yeah. Uh, I def- yeah. It's definitely uh, interesting when you compare the different sports and, and how it's affected. We are, uh, we're pretty lucky. One of the uh, nutritionists that we've worked with before, he used to, he used to work at the, at the Australian Institute of Sport. Um, and he now works for the UFC. His name's Reed, Reed real. And um, he actually did his, phd thesis on different combat sports so it was really interesting learning from him and and reading some of the things that he published how it compares between the ufc and 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 judo and boxing and wrestling and jiu-jitsu and stuff like that so i mean the contrast is huge so as much as while it is really useful to learn from you know if i speak to an mma dietitian or a bjj fighter it's important to learn from those people but like it's it's so different as well that you can't just copy and paste what somebody else did and try to do it yourself. Yeah, exactly. Plus each individual person has their own different um, metabolic rate. They all have different, um, the body reacts different to the way they put on or reduce weight. So it's not like a kind of like a diet, like not every diet that's out there suits every single person because everybody has different, 
requirements and is in a different situation as well. Yeah, 100%. And everyone's training load is completely different as well. So what one person thinks is hard training is looks a lot different to what a potential uh, full-time or professional fighter is doing as their hard training as well. So it makes a really big difference. Exactly. Have you ever um, trained with like um, jujitsu practitioners, say, of course, you know, stand up or have you ever done like kind of like mixed in um, Greco-Roman wrestling as like kind of like a different way to mix up training because uh, with uh, no gay jiu-jitsu and freestyle wrestling, it's a funny contrast because you can do wrestling to improve your jiu-jitsu, freestyle wrestling, or Greco as well, but you can't really do jiu-jitsu to accommodate and improve your freestyle wrestling, which is, it's funny to see. But have you done like any, it's kind of like different grappling uh, training with other individuals? Yeah. So um, when I was younger, we used to do probably one jujitsu session um, every week. Uh, and they were usually always in the gate just because it's got a lot more crossover effect um, with judo and probably did that for, a couple of years, but it was always on and off, you know, like if it was got really close to a competition, we'd cut that session out and just do more judo specific stuff. Um, done that in a few different locations uh, around the world as well. And then last year, because we had quite a, a long period without any judo competitions, just to try to keep the training as interesting and as fresh as possible, we started doing a little bit of um, freestyle wrestling and some submission grappling training um, in Sydney and in Melbourne, we did a little bit as well. So that was really um, exciting and really challenging as well because a lot of the skills are transferable, but you are going into it like with a pretty open mind. Like we had never done any wrestling, uh, no gi wrestling before. So doing a lot of that stuff was, I guess, humbling at first, especially we were going to pretty high level places as well where the guys sort of, as soon as you get there, they find out, oh, Josh and Nathan went to the Olympics for judo and they're going, okay, like... I want to have a crack at these boys now, which is good in a sense because it sort of throws you in the deep end. And I mean, uh, we like to think of ourselves as pretty decent level grappling athletes. So rather than like people looking out for you and trying to be nice, like they're coming after you, which is what you want in the sense, like we're there for hard training. And, you know, a lot of the things aren't necessarily directly transferable. Like a lot of the takedowns you learn and things, you can't do in judo, but it's the, I feel like it's still the same level of, of, con, of grappling condition and the physicality that you get and the strength improvements and the balance and coordination, all that sort of stuff that you get the improvements from. So I think it's a little bit less of a direct improvement and a lot more, it's a little bit more indirect. You're getting the, the overall benefits of fighting and grappling and, and competing and physicality and, you know, understanding how to overcome certain problems and stuff like that, that, uh, you get a little bit complacent sometimes when you're just doing judo um, because you just sort of get into a groove and things feel good. And especially if you're in an environment where there's not so many people better than you, which overseas is not the case, but when we're at home, there's not so many people that are able to beat us, especially in our own weight divisions. Um, so doing those sessions as well was, was really fun and I, I enjoyed them a lot. Yeah. Cause uh, one of the first things, uh, kind of we experienced um, at SJJA in Maroubra when they brought on um, 
the wrestling coach. I can't remember his last name. He just goes by the name Lenny. He actually um he was involved. He competed in the Olympics. I'm not too sure which one, and he's had massive involvement with it. And one of the first things you kind of realize because in jiu-jitsu we, we we you kind of start on the ground compared to wrestling is they finish on the ground so when you start kind of moving those wrestling individuals about and stand up they're just so it's just a different level of strength that's almost mm-hmm. like because you know you probably know or notice when you go against um those jujitsu practitioners in the gay they're probably not as too keen on trying to do massive throws. They just, they're happy to sit down and pull guard. Because in jiu-jitsu, when you get tired, you just sit down and pull guard on someone. I mean, to, to be honest, uh, when we, if we ever do sort of jiu-jitsu in a gi training, then we just normally start on the ground because most of the guys, like, they get so nervous at the idea of getting thrown by somebody that does judo that we just, like, just start on the ground straight away. <laughs> but, yeah. uh We've done like a few sort of seminars and things like that as well. And it is actually really interesting when you sort of break down, like not every, just because it, the throw looks really awesome or just before, because, you know, a wrestling takedown looks awesome. It might not necessarily be that useful um, for the other sports. So having that uh, an understanding of, of doing all of them as well, I think is, is really useful, especially if you're going to, try to train in a few different of the combat sports or teach in a few of them, then uh, having a little bit of experience of, of why you don't want to just fall on your back in jujitsu or why you don't want to just fall on your back in judo, but in jujitsu, it might be useful. Um, yeah. is is useful. Yeah. Cause you get a um, bit of a contrast. Um, so if I ever go with like a freestyle wrestler, wrestler, I'm just like, do it. Everyone just don't suplex me. Cause that's like the most scariest thing to like most people but um like you said you do like a massive throw take them to the ground like that's a it's a lot of energy to move another human being your weight or even heavier than you and do a massive movement and then start working on the ground because most of the time you know the throw might not you know it might not be perfect but then now the person on the ground has a different angle a different aspect of maneuvering and start working their attacks. And of course, in jujitsu, it's we thrive being on the ground. Like that's the bread and butter pretty much. Yeah, 100%. I mean, uh, getting suplexed every now and then isn't so bad. It's, it's good to, to let it happen once or twice, just so you know you're not going to break in half from it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's humbling. Because um, I was thinking um, just the other week, because I got um, hip tossed by one of the black belts I guess a month ago and I realized it actually wasn't as bad. Like it didn't, I didn't get winded. It didn't like snap my rib cage in half, but I think because I wasn't, if I was standing on the sideline seeing that, I feel like that would have seeing it was worse than actually it, it happening to me, which was pretty, it was pretty interesting as well. Cause it made me not as, scared to do that similar situation yeah i think that's why in a way judo can be oh sorry jujitsu can be a little bit more marketable and appealing to uh than judo because from a 
from the external point of view, when you watch it, it seems like it's a lot more manageable. You know, it's a lot less impact on the body, a lot less load. It seems like there's a lot less risk of injury. Whereas when you just watch a judo session, especially if you watch sort of pretty high level guys and they're just throwing each other. And we've been throwing each other since we were little kids. So you don't feel it now. Your body's just conditioned to getting thrown like that. So if you watch guys getting thrown 10 or 15 times in a training session and you're like, I don't want to do like that that looks terrible. So it's uh, it can be a little bit off-putting sometimes. So I always, I always admire a little bit, to be honest, when, you know, some of the little kids from our judo club, their, their parents want to give judo a try and they jump on the mat and, you know, guys in their, in their forties and fifties getting thrown around. Like I have a lot of respect for that because I can appreciate how hard it was when I was a little kid. And now these guys later in, like at the later stage in their life, it's uh certainly isn't fun um getting thrown around so i i got a lot of respect for for anyone that jumps on the map and you know not to mention if you put in um a real life application it's more realistic say if you hopefully no one gets in street fights but you know if someone's in a street fight they it's not so much of a, like a no gear situation it's you know they've probably got a t-shirt a blazer a tie a jumper so it's a bit more realistic as well and it's Super, you know, I keep you keep hearing, you know, people discussing about striking versus grappling in a street fight. Um, I guess um, Farah Sahabi said it quite well. He said if there's like more, more than one person, like two, three people, then striking becomes more applicable, becomes more beneficial because you can't just, they're not going to stand in a single line and be like, all right, next person, throw them, next person. But if it's just a one-on-one, then... I guess uh, working with like the gay in judo or jiu-jitsu is a bit more realistic as well. Yeah. I mean, I definitely like the idea as well of, of people just feeling comfortable um, with, with impact and things like that as well, which is why I think judo is, is really good or, or any combat sport really. If uh, just so like you were saying before, you know, you get thrown with a really big hip throw and then you're like, oh, okay, like I'm not going to, I didn't break anything. Like, I got up, I'm okay. And I think a lot of that developed, it develops a lot of confidence for a lot of kids, especially, which, which is really good to see a lot of kids that, that are struggling with confidence or maybe getting picked on at school a little bit. And it's not teaching them to fight. It's just teaching them that like, you know, you're, you're tougher and you're, you can handle things that maybe you didn't think that you could before, which, which is cool to see as well when kids start getting more confident, opening up and, and wanting to start fighting a little bit more in judo than, or in any combat sport, like it's, uh, it's awesome. Yeah, you realize you're not made of glass. You realize you're not yeah. gonna. It's not gonna be the end of you. They're they're not gonna yeah. totally implode on you or explode on you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so being immersed in um judo for like your entire life, how do you um like in your mindset like disconnect from judo? So do you have any like particular hobbies that you do when say? judo training is a bit too much you kind of kick back a bit and kind of like refresh your mind a bit is there any like particular hobbies or techniques of any kind that you do just to recharge yourself i mean uh i don't think you can ever fully fully escape it uh especially like you know my family environment at home judo is such a big part of of our life you know like my mom and dad are the coaches of our club and they're our coaches obviously so even if we're not talking about our judo. There's always some some element of judo involved 
uh, in our life, which, which uh, I still like because I'm all, me and Nathan are also really involved in, in the judo club. So we want to be a part of everything that's going on there as well. Um, but yeah, definitely need those escapes sometimes and uh, just be really big sports fans. So following other sports means that you're still getting that, like the enjoyment of sport without necessarily thinking about yourself. Um, but yeah, I mean, always just, always just trying to find ways to, to distance yourself a little bit when, when things are getting tough, just meeting a lot. Most of my friends uh, at home aren't involved in judo. So I can chat to people and most of them have no idea what judo is. So it's good to, to be able to chat to them and, and not go too much into details about how training and stuff is going. And um, yeah, yeah. Just uh, a study as well. So trying to break that up a little bit with, uh, I guess, trying to learning and challenging myself with in other areas of, of life as well. So it's always, I guess, a challenge. You can never fully escape it, especially when, when you're so immersed in the sport um, and all the other areas of your life are so immersed in the sport, but um, definitely when you're traveling, it can be a little bit easier because you are just away from all the other influences. So when we're overseas now at the moment, like it's just training and then in between training, like it's really do whatever you want. Like there's no other things that are, that are drawing you back to the sport. All you have to worry about is just train and get to the next session and, and recover as much as you can. It's really important, like you said, because you don't want to totally disconnect yourself from what you're doing because then I guess that can, that can kind of like snowball into effect where you might lose um, touch with why you're in that Olympic position in the first place. But it's also refreshing, like you said, to talk to your mates who aren't totally immersed in judo that you can just, you know, talk a bit of shit crack jokes each other, roast each other. It's like really, it's really refreshing as well. Yeah. uh, Yeah, it's exactly right. It's important to have those people around you that, I mean, even if they do understand the sport, that it's uh, having the times that you sort of, you're aware that maybe now isn't the best time to just chat like the week of a competition. Like I don't really want to talk about the competition. Like I've done all the preparation and I'm trying to lose weight and I'm doing a lot of training and, you know, like in between training sessions and, and trying to lose weight. Like I don't really want to talk about training and losing weight anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a, yeah. it's enough train as it is sometimes that you're right. You just want to get on the phone and chat to your mates and talk a bit of shit and, and, the, and you're laughing and you feel better. And then you get to the next session a little bit more refreshed and, and mentally ready to go. Mm. How do you mentally prepare yourself for something like the Olympics? Do you, have like a sports psychologist on the Olympic team or do you like write out affirmations or do you just put, or do you just really rely on yourself knowing that you've put so much effort and work in to this camp than last camp that you're confident enough that I can um, outperform whoever steps in front of me. I don't uh, work with a sports psychologist day to day. I have used one before, um, especially when I was coming back from injuries and, and they were a pretty difficult time um, sort of mentally and emotionally having someone to talk to was really useful, but generally I don't uh, talk to one. I think they are really useful. It's just, especially with how much we're traveling and stuff, I I've just learned to, to adapt um, myself a lot more, but 
Um, just a lot of, I think for me personally, is a lot of sort of visualization and, and um, sort of seeing thing, seeing the competition in advance. So like trying to prepare yourself for good situations, bad situations, every time you're training in the lead up to the competitions, you're trying to sort of simulate that mindset that you're going to have in competition so that if you, you can't just train, you know, like fun and, and uh, just going through the motions and training and then you rock up to the competition and then it's like, boom, time to go. Like you, you sort of have to put yourself in that, in that headspace um, every now and then. It can't be all the time because that's even too draining. Um, but just putting yourself in that situation where, um, yeah, it's, it's not just training. Like you are treating it like a competition and, and there's something on the line. Um, and like you said before, just really having the confidence in yourself in the preparation that you did, which, which can definitely be challenging when you've had some obstacles to overcome. But I mean, once you get to a high level in sport, I feel like everyone has, has some sort of obstacle to overcome to just to get to the competition. So just having full amount of confidence in your, in your, in yourself and your training, your preparation and, and then using sort of that belief of others as well. Um, I definitely think is useful. It's not relying on, what other people are telling you or their expectations or whatever, but you know, people that you trust around you. So for me, it's, it's the national coach that's here, Daniel, it's my parents, it's my brother, it's people giving you the confidence that like, you know, those, those affirmations that you've done the work and, and if they know actually what you've done, they're not just telling you, you know, Oh, you've done the work, but they don't know anything that you've done. They know all the work I've put in the time I've invested the energy and that sort of thing. So when they're giving you those affirmations, then it, it, uh, it strengthens your own as well. But yeah, it definitely has to come from within because in the end you can have uh, the biggest support network in the whole world. And, and once you go out on the mat, it's just you, you and, and the guy you're fighting. So if, uh, if you can't hold it together for those four minutes or eight minutes or however long you're going to be on the mat for just by yourself, then um, yeah, it's, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Cause it, it is an individual sport, but there is like, you know, a team behind it. But it's not like basketball where it's there's another four players on your team where they can carry an equal amount of the workload. It's you and the other person trying to test out to see who is, I guess, physically strong. Well, kind of like everyone's at that same physical level when you get to that certain point, but it's more, I guess, who can... Uh, outperform, out-execute the other yeah. individual. Who can put it together on the one day? Because uh, you see it, you see it all the time in uh, in major events, in World Championships, Olympics. It's not always the best guy that wins each fight, and it's not always the best guy that wins a medal or wins a gold medal. It's the guy that rocked up on the day more ready than everyone else. Because, I mean, in the end, you when you come off the mat, it's uh, it's on you. Like anything that happens in that time that you're fighting, it's, it's on you. You can't look to your teammate or you can try to look at the referee or the coach as someone to blame, but uh, in the end, it's going to be on you. So um, yeah, having the confidence that everything you did in the preparation was enough um, sort of can give you the belief that, you know, if you give it your best and it's not enough, then sometimes you have to be content with that. But uh, knowing that your best is enough, um, is definitely something that will give you confidence going on to the fight. Yeah, like like you said, kind of like who turns up uh, more prepared on the day as well. Um, 
just recent, uh, just today actually, the um, NCAA um, Div One Men's Championship Wrestling was on, and yesterday was the kind of like the semi-finals day, and there was one bloke. I'm just gonna put. I don't want to like mess up his name. He's got a pretty funny name. AJ Ferrari. He, I think it was fourth or fifth ranked, comes in the semi-final and he just decimates the guy who was first all year. Just makes him makes him look like he was a Div 3 junior college, you know, scrub. And he just decimated him and he goes on to win the championship, which was super interesting to see as well. Yeah, and uh, I mean, seeing those guys that defy all the expectations, it gives you confidence as somebody that maybe isn't the the highest ranked person going into the the major events that, you know, you just got to put it to the, the gap at the top is so small between all of the guys fighting at those events that it's really just a matter of who can put it together on the day. So seeing somebody like that, or when you go to the Olympics, somebody that's ranked 20 wins a gold medal, it's just... It, it makes you realize that there really isn't as big a difference as maybe what people make it out to be like at, at the Olympics or at the worlds or at the NCAAs, anyone that's there that was able to qualify to be there is good enough to win it on their day. So it's um, yeah, it makes those events really interesting because how people react to those pressure circumstances isn't always uh, as positive as you, as you think. So it's, uh, it's definitely interesting seeing who takes advantage of that one day. Mm. And also I want to ask you, how do you um, strengthen your mind? Um, is it through kind of like learning from your mistakes? Because I'm um, just reiterating from the NCAA Men's Wrestling Championship, the, one of the guys who won, I think it was the 115-pound uh, Spencer Lee, who's got no ACL ligaments in his knee. And he goes out and just cleans up. And that was his third collegiate title. So for those who don't know that, you're only in college for four years and he's won three championships out of the four with, you know, horrible knee injuries. And I can only imagine those were not too pleasant times because having no ACLs is is rough. And on your mind, it's probably even rougher because you're probably – not walking straight, you probably have a lot of inflammation in your knees. And with freestyle wrestling, it's a lot of it's a lot of reps. And there's some of the guys who probably compete at Olympic levels. You know, like a lot, a lot, a lot of double legs, a lot of groundwork. And I just want to know from your perspective, how do you um, strengthen your mind? What kind of puts, um, in your perspective, puts you over the edge mentally than your other um, opponents? I think a lot of it um, is just how you how you prepare and how you train and dealing with those circumstances in training because, um, I mean, when in the lead up to big competitions, the training can be horrendous sometimes, you know, like you're going, you're waking up every day and just so sore and so tired. And you're when you're going into some of those sparring sessions, you know, you're going into them at like maybe 50 or 60% of your, of your best ability. So it's... Uh, it's definitely mentally challenging sometimes going into some of those sessions where if the other guys aren't preparing for major events, like they're a little bit heavier than normal and they're not that fatigued and their bodies are holding up pretty well. So 
you are not doing ever as well as what you want to do in training sometimes. Uh, and gradually as you start to get close to competition and you bring your volume down and you start tapering, then your performance level goes up. But in those like grinding sort of weeks, it's um, they're the times when you have to just learn to adapt to, to bad situations. And I think that the, the instincts that you learn, like, you know, you either have a little quit in you or you have like the bit that pushes on. Um, and, you know, you can call people some nasty names and stuff like that as well when they choose the quitting option. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's the, you're training yourself to either, to how you're going to adapt to those situations. So if every time in training things get really, really tough and you look for the way out, then when you get to competition and things get really, really tough, then your instinct is going to be to take that easy way out. Well, not even the easy way out, take the hard way out, but still it's still a way out. So I feel like the only way to really make your mind strong in those situations is just to train it. Um, and that's just putting yourself under the hardest possible preparation and getting through those situations, being consistent, always, always backing yourself to get through it. Even when the end result, the outcome often isn't good. It's just like believing that, all right, got to go again tomorrow, new day, start again, new session things like that so yeah you definitely uh you train your body through you train your mind in uh at the at the training session so you either practice to be somebody that gives up when things get really really hard or you practice being the person that uh that pushes through do you have like a really big um pain tolerance because i was speaking to melissa holschultz she was on the podcast a few weeks ago she was um working her way into being an Olympian for Australian in running like the 800 meters and the steeplechase. And now she is like, I guess, top five triathletes in the world. And one thing um, I took away from what she was saying, because triathletes, they go on for four or five hours doing three, almost three individual sports where each one of those sports, you can make a career out of yourself. But one of the main takeaways was she said it's not how fit or how strong someone is running, swimming or cycling because at that at the highest level, everyone can do it. Everyone knows how to swim, cycle and run. But it's how much pain um, the individual can go through determines who is actually the winner. And she really put it like plain and simple. It's how much can you suffer is going to determine how you're going to win or like if you're going to come first, second or last. Yeah. hundred percent. And that's, ex that's, uh, that's probably a better way of, of, uh, of explaining what I was, what I was saying before of just uh, it's the person that can put themselves through the most amount of pain and suffering and still keep pushing on. And, and physically it's important obviously to be the best conditioned or the strongest or whatever, but it's mentally as well, who can push through those pain barriers Um and keep going and obviously in a combat sport where the impact is high and there's a lot of strain and pressure on your ligaments and joints and all that sort of stuff then uh yeah it's uh there's a there's always an easier way out than just training and going pushing forward like there's always a way out so um yeah i mean it's uh it's one of the very challenging things but one of the fulfilling things i think in the sport as well when you have those obstacles and you do overcome them and you know you come out better on the other side then 
um, it definitely gives you a lot of, of self-belief that you can get through, mm. get through anything, I guess, when in a sports seat, in a sports sense anyway. So when you um, turn up to uh, Rio or say judo uh, world championship, if you're coming in a little bit sore and then, you know, you got to perform for the next, um, I'm not sure if they do like a multiple um, round robin tournament. Are you just like, I just got to stick it out the next hour of actual um, performance and then everything's going to feel all right or oh, I should yeah, say I mean, in those, uh, yeah. those major events, you only have to, you only have to perform for one day. So, I mean, any, any pain or, or bad feelings that you've got on that one day, like it's going to be over soon. And so you're either going to complain about being sore the next day, like you pretty much every day, the day after you fight, you, you wake up sore most days. Um, and that soreness feeling feels really, really bad if you didn't get a good result. And it feels really, really good when you did get a good result. So, I mean, either way, you're going to wake up the next day and something's going to hurt and you're going to feel pretty rough physically. Um, but if it was worth it and you came out with something at the end of it, then uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty nice feeling. And on the flip side, it's a pretty horrendous feeling when you wake up and your body's really sore and you got nothing from it the next day. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a uh, very, very big contrast of, uh, of physical and, uh, and emotions as well. Exactly. Winning Q was everything. The Q was all. Yeah, 100%. Exactly. Unless if you, yeah, it just, first or nothing really. <laughs> Makes everything feel better. That's it. Exactly. Makes all the soreness and injuries kind of go away for a little bit. Roll. Yeah, food I'll tastes better. Everything, yeah. everything tastes better. Adds a little bit fresher. Food tastes a little bit sweeter. That's it, 100%. Yeah, exactly. All right, Josh, I know you've got a real tight schedule. Um, as you know, you're in Hungary right now, Budapest, with the Australian team. Um, I'll let you go now. I know you're probably like sick of talking to this bloke, never met before as well. <laughs> um, no, nah, it was uh, it was great to chat with you. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. No worries. Um, just before, before we go, got any uh, plugs, social media plugs? Where can we find you? Got any any socials that we need to know about so we can keep a track on you? Yeah, so most of my uh, social media activity is on Instagram and it's just uh, at Josh underscore cat 60. Um, so, yeah, you can follow most of my uh, traveling experiences and judo experiences as it is. Uh, should be an exciting couple of weeks ahead. We've got three, three competitions on the bounce and then two weeks of hotel quarantine. So if you want to get into some dark sort of humor, then uh, that, might be, uh, that might be for you as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Josh, really appreciate it. Good luck out there and bring home that gold, bro. Perfect. Thank you, mate. See you later. Catch you later, Josh. Thank you.